news in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Alyssa Nadwarni. Good morning. After a deadly attack on American forces in the Middle East, the U.S. launched retaliatory strikes hitting Iranian-backed militias and their affiliates in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. We'll talk about how those actions impact the U.S.'s strategy with Iran and with the region. Plus, tonight, the Grammys. Singer-songwriter Noah Kahn is up for Best New Artist and Taking His Mom. My mom, my enti- literally my entire childhood, was like, when you go to the Grammys, you got to take me. The day I found out I got nominated, I called her and I was like, we're going to the Grammys. So she's out here. I'm trading her because she is. She deserves it. It's Sunday, February 4th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the latest airstrikes in Yemen sent a clear message to the Houthi rebel group. The U.S. and Britain struck more than 30 sites in 13 different locations. They were a second wave of attacks on groups aligned with Iran following the deaths last weekend of three U.S. troops in a drone attack in Jordan. Following an easy win in this weekend's Democratic primary in South Carolina, President Biden is now focusing on Nevada. With Nevada's primary on Tuesday, Biden will be in Las Vegas today. Here's NPR's Tamara Keith. The president's schedule includes an event where his re-election campaign says he will speak directly to voters about the stakes of this election. Biden has recently begun delivering blunt attacks on former President Trump, saying he is a threat to democracy and describing him as a loser who lost the 2020 election but won't admit it. Biden pushed to have Nevada's primary moved earlier in the Democratic nominating calendar because the state's diverse population better represents the Democratic Party's base. It will also be a key swing state come November, one Trump narrowly lost in 2020, but where Republicans were able to eke out a narrow victory in the 2022 governor's race. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Fourteen Republican governors are meeting with Governor Greg Abbott today at the Texas-Mexico border. Josie Lenore of Little Rock Public Radio reports. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, and Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, among other GOP governors, will join Abbott at Eagle Pass for a briefing on border security. The meeting comes amid an escalating feud between Abbott and the Biden administration over immigration enforcement. Texas has continued to deny U.S. Border Patrol agents entry to a park in Eagle Pass, has become one of the busiest locations for people attempting to cross the southern border. Immigration enforcement is typically a federal responsibility, but Abbott has said he will continue implementing new immigration measures as part of his Operation Lone Star. Earlier this month, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that federal agents could remove razor wire placed by Texas officers along the border. For NPR News, I'm Josie Lenora. Voters in El Salvador heading to the polls today. The current president is popular but authoritarian. He's widely expected to win re-election. Here's NPR's James Dubeck. President Nayib Bukele has led a sweeping crackdown on gangs in El Salvador. Since the start of a state of emergency nearly two years ago, at least 76,000 people have been arrested. El Salvador's murder rate is down and many areas are safer, but the crackdown has swept up thousands of innocent people. El Salvador's constitution bans presidents from consecutive terms, but his allies packed the Supreme Court, which then allowed Bukele to run again. Bukele has worked to consolidate power, and experts say El Salvador is fast becoming a one-party state. James Dubeck, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. 
I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts cities and towns are barely spending the money they've been allocated from opioid settlements. A Boston Globe analysis found that under 5% of the $50 million distributed to cities and towns had been spent on addiction-related efforts. More than 90% of communities that submitted financial reports to the state did not spend any of that money last fiscal year. Boston recently announced that it plans to spend some of its $6 million on supportive housing and on payments to people who have lost loved ones to overdoses. State police are investigating after the fatal shooting of a man in a vehicle on Route 95 South. A police spokesperson says at least two cars were involved in the incident in Foxborough last night. The victim was pronounced dead at a nearby hospital. No other information was available. The state has suspended more than two dozen commercial driver's licenses in connection with an alleged bribery scheme. The Massachusetts Registry of Motor Vehicles says it found 26 people who did not properly pass the test and downgraded them to Class D passenger's licenses. The drivers will need to retake their exams. Two current and two former state troopers were among the six people charged in the scheme. The troopers are accused of falsifying records and accepting bribes from people taking the commercial licensing exams. Starting today, Boston Public School students and their families can visit some of the city's museums and cultural institutions without paying for admission. The free admissions will be in place the first two Sundays of each month through the summer. School Superintendent Mary Skipper says the program offers chances for students to learn outside the classroom. Our young people in BPS spend only 20% of their waking time with us. Only 20%. And that means that the opportunity gap is our responsibility collectively to close. Museums available for students include the MFA, the ICA, and the Boston Children's Museum. Free admissions also available at the New England Aquarium and the Franklin Park Zoo. It's 24 degrees in Boston, a high today around 40. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. Aisha Roscoe is away. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. President Joe Biden said the U.S. would retaliate against Iran-backed targets in the Middle East, and so it has. Friday, the U.S. launched airstrikes in Syria and Iraq, a response to a drone attack last Sunday on an American base in Jordan that killed three American troops. Yesterday, the U.S., along with Britain, launched strikes in Yemen. More on the U.S. strategy with Iran in a moment. First, NPR national political correspondent Mara Eliasson joins us now. Good morning, Mara. Good morning, Alyssa. So the U.S. blames Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and militias affiliated with it for the drone attack. And of course, Houthi militants have been attacking commercial ships and military vessels in the Red Sea almost daily. A spokesman for the group said yesterday that they will, quote, meet escalation with escalation. So did these retaliatory strikes have any perils for the Biden administration? Well, if they led to a wider war with Iran, possibly. But right now, Republicans and Democrats agree that the U.S. had to send a message to Iran. They had to degrade the assets of the militias that are backed by Iran and are attacking Americans. But if these airstrikes don't spark a wider war, I don't think Biden has a political price to pay. Hmm. 
South Carolina held the first official Democratic primary yesterday, and no surprise, President Biden won big time. What else can you tell us from the results, Mara? Biden got the win he wanted. It looks like he's going to get over 90% of the vote there. That is exactly what he wanted because Biden has been having trouble generating enthusiasm among one of his most important core constituencies in the Democratic Party, and that's African-American voters. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of them in South Carolina. That's one of the reasons he wanted the primary contests to start in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. That's why he's been down there campaigning several times. He has to figure out a way to get enthusiasm among African-Americans up so that African-American turnout is up in November. And polls show he has a real um, hard job because a YouGov poll recently said only 61% of African-American voters said they definitely vote for Biden in the fall. And in 2020, he got 87% of them. Hmm. Okay, so the primary season has just begun, but it's effectively over? Yep, <laughs> it's effectively over. It looks like Biden and Donald Trump are the presumptive nominees. This election is going to be nasty, brutish, and long. It's <sighs> probably going to be the longest one we've ever had because the primaries ended so early yeah. uh, or were wrapped up so early. It's also one that most people don't want. Americans mm. have told pollsters in big majorities on both parties that they wish they had candidates other than Biden and Trump running. Uh, and I think both sides are going to be extremely negative in their campaigning. If you can't drum up enthusiasm to get people to vote for you, then you have to convince them that the alternative is horrifying. And Biden starts this election with some of the lowest approval ratings ever for a modern incumbent president. And Donald Trump is also incredibly polarizing. Yeah. We had another really good jobs report on Friday, one that actually kind of stunned analysts. Is that going to have an effect on the race? Has it so far? It hasn't yet. For many decades, presidential approval rating was tied to the economy. Presidents got credit when the economy was good, blame when it was bad. But historical rules only work till they stop working, and they stopped working with Trump. He had a very good economy before the pandemic. He was still very unpopular. Biden seems to be having a good economy. It looks like we're going to get that soft landing, inflation down without a recession. Wages are up. They're growing faster than inflation. Unemployment is down. Uh, and so far, Biden's approval ratings haven't budged. One possible answer for this is that we're just so polarized yeah. that when Democrats are in the White House, Republicans say the economy is bad. And when Republicans are in the White House, it's uh, vice versa. So the connection between the economy and presidential approval ratings might be broken. Yeah. The contest between Biden and Trump is also resulting in some big legislative disputes on Capitol Hill. What's the latest with the border policy bill? The latest is that House Republicans plan to vote on a standalone bill to give military aid to Israel, about $17.6 billion with no offsets. In the past, they had insisted that any military aid would be paid for with cuts to other areas of the budget. In, in this case, they wanted to cut IRS funding. But that they're now putting a clean bill for military aid to Israel on the floor. That bill has no chance in the Senate because in the Senate, there's a bipartisan group of senators still working on a big bipartisan border deal that would include aid to Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan. Mm -hmm. But Donald Trump has told Republicans don't vote for any bipartisan border bill because it might help Biden politically in the next election. And this is why voters are so cynical about Washington. You know, immigration is a problem that could be solved. But Republicans don't want a bipartisan bill, which you have to have in divided government, because it might help Biden. And on that crass, just political calculus, they're probably right. That's NPR national political correspondent Mara Lyson. Thanks, Mara. Thank you.
Let's turn now to U.S. strategy in the Middle East and what the Biden administration is trying to accomplish with strikes against Iran-backed militias in Iraq, Syria, and Yemen. We're joined by Abbas Milani, the director of Iranian studies at Stanford University. Good morning. Good morning. So the U.S. has said deterrence and degrading the capabilities of these militias is the goal. How effective might these strikes be? I don't think they have been uh, very effective. If you read the Iranian uh, media, particularly the ones close to the IRGC, uh, they haven't been effective at all. In fact, uh, many of the IRGC papers make fun of these things. Wow. Uh, Javan says uh, they hit 80 uh, sites, almost all empty. So if the goal was deterrence, it hasn't worked. If the goal was to tell the American people and the Congress that the administration is doing something about it, in that sense, I think it has worked. What about when it comes to the U.S. sending a message to Iran? Uh, are these strikes effective there? I think the message was uh, very effective because uh, as soon as uh, President Biden talked about uh, the possibility of uh, retaliation, Iran began repeating almost ad nauseum that we had nothing to do with it. Mm. Uh, Iran's proxies, uh, particularly in Iraq, declared that they will stop the attacks. So there was uh, contrition. There was uh, at least a tactical retreat. But concurrent with those uh, pronouncements directed to the West, again, the Iranian media that was preaching to the converts for the regime uh, was going full uh, f force on the need to continue the attacks, inviting Houthis, inviting uh, the Shiites in Iraq to attack U.S. planes that are going towards Israel. I mean, they increased the rhetoric hmm. domestically, but retreated diplomatically in public. Fascinating. So, the, yeah, that, that kind of contrition. And how much control does Iran have over these militias? I think they have a great deal of control. They arm them, they train them, they pay a great deal of their expenses. But whether they control every action that those militias take, I'm not sure about that. I doubt it, but I think they have overall control. And if they wanted to tell Houthis not to attack ships, I think they absolutely have that power. And the fact that they have continued doing it the fact that the Houthis, for example, have not uh, targeted uh, ships that belong to China mm. clearly indicates that there is, uh, uh, there is some method to this madness. Yeah, some global priorities coming down to kind of tactical, the tactical level. How concerned are you about the strikes sparking a wider conflict? Uh, I am not that concerned because I don't think, uh, certainly the Biden administration once said a general war with Iran. And unmistakably, the Iranian regime doesn't want a war with the United mm -hmm. States. They're very weak economically. They're very isolated diplomatically. There is a great deal of a dissent domestically. There is a great deal of dissatisfaction with any possibility of war uh, domestically. Iranian media, again, has been writing how much people are traumatized by the possibility of another war. So mm -hmm. the Iranian regime doesn't want a war, can't afford a war. But at the same time, by its nature, it can't also relent on its uh, uh, mad rhetoric of destroying Israel and destroying the United States and getting rid of the United States from all of the Middle East. Right. Yeah, to what extent is reducing tensions across the region just contingent on you know, the U.S. helping to end Israel's offensive in Gaza? 
I think that will go a long way in uh, making it more difficult for the Iranian regime to engage mm -hmm. in its propaganda and Iranian regime's proxies to engage in its activities. I think there has to be a stop to uh, the images that are coming out of uh, uh, Gaza. Those can only help uh, the radical elements within the Islamic movement and the radical elements within the uh, Middle East. Those are horrible images, just as the uh, images of what uh, uh, Hamas terrorists did to Israelis was horrible. Mm -hmm. The images of children, the images of uh, uh, 27, a reality of 27,000 people dead can't help Israeli security in the long run and only, I think, helps lunat radical lunatics like the Iranian regime. In just our, our last bit here, what are you watching for next? Uh, I, I'm watching for both sides to try to walk away from the confrontation. I, I don't think either one wants to uh, increase the tension. Uh, both of them, if they achieve what they want politically, domestically, I think will walk away from it. Yeah. That's Abbas Milani, director of the Iranian studies at Stanford University. Thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. After generations of conflict and months of war, what could the future look like for Gaza? Tune in for that conversation tomorrow on Morning Edition. Use your radio, your phone, or your smart speaker. listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. Coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll hear about new research showing how Homo sapiens and Neanderthals interacted and may have interbred. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. Send the perfect gift of Winston Flowers to your Valentine and support WBUR. Save 10% for a limited time at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. One of the world's most prominent climate scientists is suing a right-wing blogger and an analyst for defamation. You'll hear why the case is so important tomorrow morning. Start your week with 90.9 WBUR. It's 24 degrees in Boston, sunshine, high around 40. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to make his fifth trip to the Middle East since a war between Israel and Hamas broke out in October. He's leaving Washington today after the latest airstrikes against Houthi targets in Yemen. The U.S. and Britain struck 36 sites in a second wave of attacks against groups linked to Iran. President Biden is heading to Las Vegas today after easily winning this weekend's Democratic primary in South Carolina. Nevada's primary is set for Tuesday. And Californians have spent the past couple of days preparing for what forecasters say could be the largest storm of the season. The state is bracing for the second of back-to-back -back atmospheric river storms. Officials are warning of the potential for, for life-threatening flooding. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. El Salvador holds elections today, and every poll is predicting that Nayib Bukele is heading for a second term and by a landslide. The Bitcoin-loving autocrat has described himself as the CEO of El Salvador, or the world's coolest dictator. While his approval ratings are high, there is a dark story behind his popularity. We're joined by Emily Green, who has spent time reporting from El Salvador. Hi there, Emily. Hi there. So why is Bukele so popular? It's simple. There's a huge reduction in violence. El Salvador registered a nearly 70% reduction in murders in 2023. That's according to their government figures. And they say that their new homicide rate is the second lowest in the Americas after Canada. And these are really stunning figures for a country that for years had uh, one of the highest murder rates in the entire world. In El Salvador, for years, neighborhoods were dominated by gangs, and it was very, very common that residents would be extorted. I spoke to one to one man who was had to pay MS-13 $250 a month just to be left in peace, and that is a very common story across El Salvador. Um, so what you're seeing now is a country that has been liberated from the constant threat of gang violence, whether that's murders or just not having to pay an extortion. Okay, so he's able to bring, you know, the murder rate down, and it seems like he's really clamped down on organized crime. But, of course, there are downsides to all of this. There's downsides to Bekele, right? Huge downsides. There is a climate of fear in El Salvador that a neighbor could report you for being a gang member, and you'll just be picked up and locked away forever. And human rights groups say that's happened, that thousands of innocent people have been incarcerated. I also want to note that incarcerated people no longer have a right to a lawyer, and that family members are prohibited from visiting them. So the prisons are like a black hole. I spoke with Ana Maria Mendez Dardon. She leads research on Central America at the Washington Institute on Latin America. And this is what she told me. He's basically saying, look, human rights are not compatible with security. Democratic values are not compatible uh, to provide like actual answers to the people's needs. So he strengthened not just the idea of security and human rights, but he strengthened democracy and its values. And Mendez Ardon says that's a very dangerous idea. So what should we expect from a second Bukele term? That depends entirely on who you ask. His supporters are beyond thrilled. You know, he's not just clamping down on violence, but there are construction projects everywhere. Highways, a new beautiful library the construction of what Bukele says will be the most modern football stadium in all of Latin America. But his critics are frankly terrified. Bukele has already equated civil society groups and journalists with terrorists, and they worry legitimately that they will be persecuted. So we know that he is popular at home in El Salvador. How is he viewed in the wider region? He's become a folk hero across Latin America, and and that's not an overstatement. 
I went to Ecuador a few months ago and everybody was talking about him. They want a president just like Bukele who will bring the gang violence under control. And across the region, we are seeing leaders scrambling to emulate his policies. This is telling. He was even voted Costa Rica's favorite political leader in an October poll there. So he is definitely a phenomenon, but many people think he's a dangerous one. That's journalist Emily Green. Thank you very much. Thank you. Car thefts have skyrocketed in many U.S. cities over the last two years, largely involving Kias and Hyundais. But in St. Paul, Minnesota, car thefts have fallen dramatically. NPR criminal justice reporter Meg Anderson went there to see what's been going on. On a frigid winter day, St. Paul police officer Kang Her is patrolling the city's east side. So I'm going to go check an area where uh, a person left their car running during the nighttime and it was stolen within a matter of minutes. He's working a special shift. He's looking for cars that have been stolen and for cars that might get stolen. So when it's cold, like right now it's three degrees outside, people tend to leave their cars on so that it's warm when they get inside and uh, you never know who's watching that might potentially target you. He's using a scanner on his windshield and a dashboard that shows him a list of recently stolen cars. This is actually less than compared to a couple years ago. Overall, it's gone down a lot. He drives around to hotspots for a few hours, but doesn't find any stolen cars. Nothing going on. No one's around. This is actually kind of the norm in St. Paul. In 2022, car thefts here and in many other cities shot way up. But last year, St. Paul's numbers fell 40%, even as car thefts nationwide rose by nearly 30%. That's according to the Council on Criminal Justice, a nonpartisan think tank. We're dealing with a crime that has an obvious cause. We had this video hit TikTok, and the days after, you saw this enormous surge in auto thefts. Jeff Asher, a crime analyst, says the video exposed how to steal certain models of Kia and Hyundai cars. It became a challenge. People, many of them teenagers, began stealing cars and posting videos to social media, sometimes timing themselves. Yeah, yeah. 24 seconds. Asher says there are signs the nationwide spike may be easing. He examined recent data in places like Chicago, New Orleans, and Washington, D.C. What we saw was obviously a huge surge in 2022, and it carried into 2023. But towards the end of 2023, we started to see that huge upward slope hit the top and start to come down. St. Paul saw the same drop, but it started a year ahead of many other cities. The city's mayor, Melvin Carter, says it's tough to pinpoint any single reason why, but he thinks a focus on preventing thefts in the first place has been key. The truth is, there's not really a way that you can take credit for that, because that person doesn't wake up and see their car in their driveway and go, good job, St. Paul Police Department. (laughs) (laughs) The city has focused on teaching people basic tips for how not to be a target. They've given out steering wheel locks to Kia and Hyundai owners. And they focused on giving teenagers other things to do, like free youth sports. I have children, and when it comes to keeping them safe, my first question is, how do I get the gates up above the stairway? How do I get the plastic plugs and the outlets? This is about extrapolating that same approach to a whole city. 
Ramsey County, where St. Paul is located, also has an intervention program aimed at preventing car thefts. It works with around 100 young people, mostly boys, between 10 and 17. The program has taken them things like plays and basketball games, even helped them find part-time jobs. Staff member Yusef Davis says he loves it when he sees a shift in how these kids think. I think those aha moments come when you show them, like, look, you don't have to do dirt to survive. There's another path for you. You just have to consciously make the decision. The kids meet weekly at a community center with a group therapist and their parents. One mom says a court recommended her son attend these meetings after he got involved with a group of teenagers stealing cars. And we've been coming every Wednesday. She didn't want to be named because she worried it would negatively affect her son. But she says the weekly commitment has made a big difference, even to her. It's helped me get re-situated, like in a structure, a schedule. Sometimes you just got to start somewhere. This group has helped me stabilize myself. She says you get kids on the right track by being an example of being on the right track. Meg Anderson, NPR News. Is a teacher with no students still a teacher? That is the question Arena Sahan has been struggling with for 18 months. For more than three decades, she's taught kindergarten in the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, the country's second largest city that is regularly under artillery attacks from Russia. Her school and all the public schools in Kharkiv have been shut down since the Russian invasion in February of 2022. I met Sahan more than a year ago, and back then, she took me to her beloved kindergarten that had been damaged by shelling. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to be in this classroom. This isn't what you left in February. All you see is the emptiness, Irina Sahan tells me. All you hear is the silence. The last class of students she had, a group of six-year-olds she nicknamed Goldfish, the war spread them all over the world. Aurora in Spain, in Germany. Back then, I could see their artwork still hanging in the classroom. There were a dozen African violets that they planted in the days before the invasion on a table. And there was Irina Sahan, a teacher with no students. I am stuck. I am waiting, she says. Everything is on pause. This was all in January of 2023. I recently returned to Ukraine and to Kharkiv, and I couldn't resist visiting Irina Sahan again. On a very cold Saturday in January, she was finally returning to a classroom of students. Happening deep in one of Kharkiv's underground metro stations. It was the first time she'd been in front of students in nearly two years. She and her co-workers at the kindergarten above ground had transformed the space which overlooks the train platform. In it, there are colorful rugs and little desks, posters and pictures hung up on the walls. The students sing together, they play Simon Says, and get one-on-one attention from Sahan. 
Sahan, focused and serious, but clearly in her element, bends down to help a student with pigtails. Count the number of stars on a worksheet. Good job, Sahan says with a big grin. At the end of the class in the underground, parents rush to her to thank her. It's been so long, they said. Thank you for setting this up. Later, Sahan and I and our interpreter meet up to debrief. Tell me what it felt like to be in a classroom again. It was really emotional, she says, meeting the new students for the first time. And a little scary. Because it had been so long, she says, laughing. At the end, she said, I felt like a truck had run me over. I was so tired. I nearly lost my voice. She tells me this new group of students, their social skills, their reading skills, are really far behind. But she's already making a plan, thinking about what each child will need from her. She shows me her upcoming lessons, art projects and books. She's been getting ready for months. She spreads out a map of Ukraine. Made of blue and yellow looped pieces of paper quilted together. Next, she points to an extra-large jigsaw puzzle. Each piece is a region of the country. For every class, Arena Sahan makes a group chat for parents. Would you show us? I just to see. Here, I can show you this one. There are already messages from parents saying how happy they are which our interpreter, Hanna Palomarenko, reads aloud for us. <laughs> Some of the parents say, we are very uh, grateful to you. This new group also has a nickname. And what is it called? Like a merry-go-round. <laughs> the name Carousel seems apt, she says laughing. Round and round, we are about to go. Even as the excitement grips her, and for the first time in a long time, she begins to think and plan for the future, the scattered class from 2022 is all around us. Their art is piled up on a table in front of us. Yeah, there's another Aurora. Yeah. Yes, she says. All the children should be here, she says. I can't throw them away, Sahan says. The other thing that survived all this time? The African violets her former students planted. Eight of them. They're in Arena Sahan's apartment. The leaves are now big and thick. She says she still waters them every day. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. About eight years ago, scientists began digging under a medieval castle in Germany. There, 24 feet underground, they discovered something intriguing. Arrowheads, human bones, and traces of reindeer, cave bears, and woolly rhinoceroses. Together, the researchers concluded that the evidence showed that Homo sapiens were living at the same time as Neanderthals. Three papers from the dig have just been published, and Elena Zavala is co-author on all three of them. She's a postdoctorate researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. Elena, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. 
if I have this right, humans didn't come after Neanderthals. Instead, the two species coexisted, right? Right. So from previous research, we do know that they've intermixed at least once or a couple of times because we have Neanderthal DNA within our own genomes. But there was always this question as to how often or for how long. And this current study finds that humans made it to the northern parts of Germany much earlier than we previously thought. And so this means that there's a much longer overlap than we had thought before. So tell me a little bit about kind of what you found, the evidence that led to that idea. Right. So within this dig, and this was, as you mentioned, quite a long uh, excavation with many different people from many different expertises who worked on this together. What we found after several years was a few skeletal remains that with proteomic analysis showed us that they were some type of hominin. And that, of course, made us very excited because we had this question as to were the stone tools that were found there at the site, were they made by humans or were they made by Neanderthals? And we didn't know. And so that's where I got involved and performed genetic analysis on these skeletal fragments. And we found out that they were indeed humans or homo sapiens. And the next question, of course, was the time period. How old were these remains? And Helen Fulis is the one who performed the radiocarbon dating, and she found that these remains ranged all the way back to around 47,000 years. Wow. Yeah, it was incredible and a wonderful surprise as this really changes our idea of how quickly Homo sapiens made it to this part of Europe. I take it that scientists were surprised that humans survived so far north when the climate was so cold? Is that is that why we're surprised? Exactly. So previously, we had thought that part of the expansion of Homo sapiens up through Europe had to do with climatic change to warmer temperatures and that past Homo sapiens followed these warmer temperatures north. But now we know that actually during this time period in this area, it was actually very cold. It was colder than it is now. And still, Homo sapiens were present. And so that changes our whole idea about our ability to adapt to these temperatures and to journey through them. And yes, this opens up a whole new area. How about interbreeding between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens? So we do know because we have Neanderthal DNA in our genomes today, or at least everyone outside of Africa has some Neanderthal DNA in them. We know that we met with Neanderthals at some points. How often that happened, uh, still an area of active research and debate. But this new evidence really expands the period of time in which these exchanges could have happened. So a lot of questions remain. <laughs> yes, which is what makes this all exciting still. <laughs> Wonderful. Elena Zavala is a postdoctorate researcher at the University of California, Berkeley, and one of the scientists that discovered Homo sapiens and Neanderthals living at the same time. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. On the MBTA, some red line changes take effect tomorrow to accommodate crews working on repairs and upgrades. From tomorrow through February 14th, red line train service will be suspended between Alewife and Harvard. In that same stretch of time, starting at 8.45 p.m., the red line trains won't run between Alewife and Harvard. Park Street. Free shuttle buses will replace train service. Another option, the T is making the commuter rail free between Porter and North Station.
A recently elected member of the Boston City Council is calling for a pilot program to appoint lawyers for renters facing eviction. Benjamin Weber says evictions are complex, and he says while only 3% of tenants have legal representation, more than 90% of landlords do. Governor Healy has proposed a similar program statewide. It's 26 degrees in Boston, sunny today, a high around 40. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply, now accepting applications for fall. Learn more at bgsp.edu. And The Huntington presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man-seeking audience, a one-man, one-audience show, 264 Huntington Ave, now through March 23rd. Sending your Valentine Winston Flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think more deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support of WBUR will enrich the lives of thousands of listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, who, along with its retailers, is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny, and it is time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and the puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hello there, Will. Good morning, Alyssa. So, Will, would you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Laura Cosma of South River, New Jersey. I said, think of a brand name and seven letters that you might find in a pharmacy, drop the last letter and rearrange the letters that remain, and you'll get another brand name and six letters that you might also find in a pharmacy. What is it? Well, the intended answer was Clairol, the hair coloring to Ricola, the cough drops. There was another answer that a lot of listeners sent in, Centrum, the uh, vitamin supplement, uh, curtails and anagrams to Nurtec, N-U-R-T-E-C, a medicine for migraines. So we counted both of those as correct. There were about 84 correct entries, and this week's winner is Eric Feinstein of Austining, New York. Congratulations, Eric. Thank you so much. How long have you been playing the puzzle? (laughs) Well, um, I'm not sure what came before postcards, but I used to walk them in. Wow. And what do you do when you're not playing the puzzle? Uh, Well, I own and operate a a mobile audio guide platform. Uh, And then when not doing that, I bake a lot, perhaps too much, if uh, you ask my family, and also uh, work on puzzles and crossword puzzles and such. What's the last thing you've baked? Uh, I made these um, Welsh cakes. A cross between basically biscuits and scones that are cooked on a griddle top. Uh, supremely good. Wow. Now you're making me hungry. <laughs> Let, let's play the puzzle. Excellent. Take it away, Will. 
All right, Eric and Alyssa, I'm going to give you some three-letter words that are found inside the names of countries. You name the countries. For example, if I said Mar, M-A-R, in seven letters, you would say Denmark. And the three letters are always inside the name, never at the start or the end. And here's number one, WED, W-E-D, in a six-letter country. Sweden. Is correct. HAM, H-A-M, seven letters. H-A-M, well, I'm not, geography, not my forte. So uh, seven letters, and HAM is right in the middle. So there's two letters before, two letters after. And it's an island country. Oh, the Bahamas. Is correct. GAS, G-A-S, ten letters. Madagascar. Excellent. BOD, B-O-D, eight letters. E-O-D, eight letters. Cambodia. Is right. WIT, W-I-T, 11. 11. Switzerland have 11? I'm not going to count. Yes. You got it. LAW, L-A-W, six letters. L-A-W, LAW. It's in Africa. Let's see. <laughs> Yeah, that narrows it down to a small amount of countries. Uh, there's two letters before law, one letter after. Malawi. Is correct. Rug, R-U-G, seven. R-U-G. South America? Yes. Uruguay. Yeah, you got it. Lip, L-I-P, 11. <laughs> um, lip. Philippines. Is correct. Rock, R-O-C, seven. R-O-C, seven. Morocco? Is right. Oat, O-A-T, seven. O-A-T. Croatia? Is right. Hut, H-U-T, six. Haven't we covered all the countries so far? <laughs> I know. This is really hard, Will. H-U-T, <laughs> uh, Hut. Um, six letters. It's in Asia. Bhutan. Is right. Okay. We got one more for you. And this one has two answers. The word is ban, B-A-N. Seven letters. And ban is in, right in the middle of the seven letters. One, two, three, four. So, so two on each side. Yeah, where where in the world are we are we talking here? Uh, one is in Europe. Okay. Formerly a communist country. Oh, so Albania. Albania, and your second one is in the Mideast, and it borders Israel. It's been in the news recently. Uh, I'm totally blanking. Uh-huh. Okay. And one big hint, it's uh, capital is Beirut. Oh, Lebanon. Lebanon is it. You got it. Wow. I mean, how do you feel, Eric? Coming in pretty hot at the top, trickling out at the end. <laughs> what are you thinking? Oh, uh, no. Pretty, pretty exhausting. I uh, didn't realize there were that many countries. <laughs> well, for playing our puzzle today, you will get a weekend edition lapel pin, as well as puzzle books and games. And you can read all about the puzzle and its prizes at npr.org slash puzzle if you are playing along at home. Eric, what member station do you listen to? WNYC. That's Eric Feinstein of Austin, New York. Thanks for playing the puzzle. Thank you. Okay, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener Steve Baggish of Arlington, Massachusetts. Name a famous classical composer in three syllables. Change the vowel sounds in the first and third syllables. And phonetically, you'll name a sport. What is it? So again, famous classical composer, three syllables. Change the vowel sounds in the first and third syllables. And phonetically, you'll name a sport. What sport is it?
When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, February 8th at 3 p.m. Eastern. And don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you are the winner, we will give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thanks, Will. Thank you, Alyssa. The thermometer may read 22 degrees below zero, but apparently it's never too cold for crime. In this case, the caper of the purloined polar bear. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police in northern Alberta are asking the public to keep an eye out for a taxidermy polar bear. He's white, black nose, has an open mouth, lots of teeth, claws, might be a little dusty. He was last seen at the Lily Lake Resort, standing 12 feet tall and weighing about 500 pounds. Answers to the name of Harry. He went missing last month during a cold snap when the resort closed down and sent its security patrols home. Because who's going to go out in negative 22 degrees? Thieves. Bundled up thieves, that's who. They broke in, cut the cables securing Harry, dragged him across the second floor balcony, then down the stairs, and finally through the double front doors. Left behind? A cougar, some deer, a bison, a musk ox. Not left behind? A pair of raccoons. They were filched back in August. The Grammys are tonight. Singer-songwriter Noah Kahn has been nominated for Best New Artist. He used to strum his guitar in a gazebo in rural Vermont, and now he plays to sold-out arenas. He can hardly believe his success. It's like a combination of like feeling like you're in a dream and feeling like you're finally living your dream. And you also wonder if they're there for the wrong person. <laughs> You're like, am I opening up or am I like supposed to be here right now? And you, and you see all these people here for you and you know they can't all be from Vermont. That's the thing. Noah Khan has made people all around the world care about his home state. Like with his latest album, Stick Season. His latest album, Stick Season, is named after a very Vermont concept. Stick Season is a term that I heard like older neighbors in Vermont and New Hampshire use uh, to describe a time of year um, between like late October and, and the first snow. So like all the leaves have gone, foliage is over in Vermont, which is obviously a beautiful time. And it's kind of this, you know, transitional time. It's a little bit depressing. It's usually gray outside. You know, you can't go play soccer. You can't you know, do too much hiking because it's pretty cold and you also can't go skiing. So it's it's kind of this time of year where they're just in between. Um, and I wanted to frame this time period as like as a relationship, like being in between a uh, love, losing love and onto the next thing and that kind of spot where you're figuring out who you are and how to reconcile, you know, what's just ended with, with what's to come. You sing about kind of this place that's freezing and doesn't get a lot of sunlight. You know, a lot of popular music today kind of feels placeless. Like, it could come from anywhere. 
And it kind of feels like the music that you're making is the opposite. It's so rooted in place. Absolutely. I spent a lot of my career making, you know, more anthemic pop music, hugely relatable, applicable to anyone's lives. But I eventually started to feel like I was no longer connecting to anything. I was just trying to be as universal as possible. And in doing so, I lost the specificity of, you know, my feelings and my life and my interpretation of where I was in life and what I wanted to get out of songwriting. You know, living in Vermont, growing up there, I, I feel like I wanted to explore a sense of specificity. Yeah, like street names and like these things that feel so like normal when it's your life. Yeah. <laughs> How have things been well loved now that you mention it? My folks still talk, they speak in these two-word sentences. Um, you wrote this album during the pandemic back in Vermont. Can you tell me about that experience and kind of what was happening in your life? There's like some family dynamics and I feel like that kind of comes out in the album too of kind of like actually not just specificity of place but specificity of like what you were going through and your parents' divorce and kind of like what that means as an adult and not a kid, like all that transition. Totally, it was this thing with my parents. I felt like I was a kid still, so I was like so hurt by it. And then I would like revert back into my mature 21, 22 year old brain. Like, you know, they're people too. And it was having to kind of force myself to let go of this idea of like, but I want mommy and daddy to be together. <laughs> this idea of a perfect family or a perfect life and, and having to, you know, adjust to that. I feel like I learned a lot about life and I learned a lot about, you know, about marriage and, and love and union. And I also learned a lot about my parents and I was proud of them for how they handled it and how they seemed to come out on the other side, happier, still fully functioning adults. And when you've lived so much life, it can be hard to start over. And I got to watch my parents do that. And it was a really inspiring and beautiful thing to see. Two months since you got back, how have you been? Are you bored yet? The weather ain't been bad if you're in a masochistic post. I wonder if you could tell me kind of like when you hear a song like that, like Homesick with Sam Fender, what do you hear? And then tell me a little bit about how that song came about. I think it's easy for a song like that just to sound like overly critical and to be like, why are you just in your town so hard, man? And uh, when really it's like, it's this feeling of, actually loving some of these things, these kind of like inconveniences or negative sides. That's totally how I feel about my hometown. Like I would much rather be stuck in traffic on a one traffic light road than, um, than be stuck in traffic in any other city in the world. <laughs> and the song, I wrote the song in the dead of winter, one of those like cold days where there's snow, but it's really just a layer of ice. And if you walk on it, your ankle will go through the ice and it'll like crunch your ankle up. and. You just like start your car and get in the shower because it's going to take 15 minutes for it to warm up. <laughs> uh, sorry, that's probably not very environmentally friendly, but I was really cold that day. And I wrote that song kind of just feeling left out of, of all these other people's lives. Like all my friends were at the, back at school or in their jobs, and I was still home, and I was thinking about, like, what am I doing here? So I, I wrote about things I was tired of, but also the things that uh, were keeping me there. Die in the house that I grew up in. I'm homesick. 
I wanted to ask you, this is a side question, but I wanted to ask you about this new hairstyle you've got, the pigtails. <laughs> Where is that from? <laughs> Tell me about that. Uh, I don't know. I think I was just like, I'm like, I like have had long hair for so long and like, it's just so unpredictable. Like at one moment I could look like Keanu Reeves and the next moment I look like a scarecrow. <laughs> and so I was like, I just need something that like stays in place. And I was doing the bun for a while. People started saying I looked like Lin-Manuel Miranda, which I don't take as an insult, but I think I'd like to carve my own space out. And so I started doing like the Willie Nelson braid. Mm. And then I started kind of going for the Post Malone French braids. Ooh. <laughs> I've been really enjoying it. I don't know. It makes me look kind of crazy. Everyone has a friend that looks like me. And so I'm trying, I was like, yeah, my friend looks like you. And then they'll show me a picture of like a raccoon. And so I was hoping to, uh, to kind of give myself a more unique look. Um, I'm just going to wrap with saying, you know, you've been nominated for a 2023 Grammy. I heard that you are taking your mom with you. Is that right? Yeah, we're in L.A. now. My mom is here. We're going to go to the Grammys together. She's loving it. She looks beautiful. My mom, my enti- literally my entire childhood was like, when you go to the Grammys, you got to take me. She made me promise. And the day I found out I got nominated, I called her and I was like, we're going to the Grammys. So she's out here. She's in a nice big suite. She's doing it all bougie. Um, <laughs> she's. I'm treating her because she is. She deserves it. That is singer-songwriter Noah Khan. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. So I thought that if I piled something good and all my bad that I could cancel out the darkness I inherited from dad. No, I am no longer funny because I missed the way you left. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadwarney. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 26 degrees in Boston, coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. Growing up, I remember working through these learn-to-read books while a lot of my classmates were just whizzing through chapter books. I had bad dyslexia. My parents would come home from these long days at work, 10, 12-hour shifts, and they'd sit down with me, and we'd sound out syllables and then string it into words. Now that I have my own kids, I think about their commitment differently. I see the support, the love that it takes to help someone else do something that's hard for them. This year, I will be sending each of them a bouquet of Winston flowers through WBUR. We used to listen to the station together. I found it easier than reading the newspaper, which was hard for me. 
If you want to thank someone, consider sending Winston flowers. It's a way to say thank you and also support the news at the same time. Visit WBUR.org to get started. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. Good morning. Voters in South Carolina's Democratic primary gave President Biden a resounding win yesterday. What young black voters there are saying. Plus, the war in Ukraine is opening an opportunity for the CIA to recruit Russian spies. You want to really appeal to them to stand up and right the wrongs and basically confronting them with, well, you really can't complain if you're not willing to do something about it. And for college-bound students, the wait is even longer this year to find out how much aid they'll get. We'll hear from one student about the delay. It's Sunday, February 4th. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. U.S. and allied forces have launched a second wave of airstrikes against Iranian-backed Houthi targets in Yemen. The strikes are in response to last weekend's deadly attack on U.S. troops. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports on the tightrope the U.S. is walking. The U.S. actions aim to strike a balance between deterring Iranian proxy forces in the Middle East without escalating what has already become a regional conflict. Iran backs Hamas, which attacked Israel on October 7th. The Israeli response to the Hamas attack has inflamed tensions and spurred action by other Iranian allies, including Houthi forces in Yemen. The Pentagon says Houthis have hit ships transiting the Red Sea more than 30 times since November, and that these latest U.S. strikes destroyed Houthi missile systems. They come a day after U.S. airstrikes in Iraq and Syria, part of an ongoing U.S. retaliation against Iranian proxies for a drone strike last Sunday that killed three Americans and wounded dozens on a base in Jordan. Quill Lawrence, NPR News. A Houthi military spokesman is warning that the latest U.S. and British airstrikes will not pass without a response and consequences. These latest strikes come as Secretary of State Antony Blinken is leaving Washington today for his fifth trip to the Middle East since the war between Israel and Hamas broke out in October. A British parliamentary committee has warned that the U.K. government uh, it must recruit more soldiers and increase defense spending, Villa Marx reports, in light of the increased threats from countries like Russia. The Defense Select Committee said Britain's military faced a, quote, vicious cycle that continued to mean it could not recruit enough personnel as soldiers, sailors and airmen and women left the armed forces due to low pay levels. The UK increasingly struggles to project military force overseas, but the outgoing UK Army head last month warned a citizen army might be needed for a future land war. President Biden posted an online thank you matches to a message to South Carolina last night. South Carolina, we did it again. You did it for me again. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 2020 and now again in 2024. 
Now let's go win the whole thing. Let's win it all. Biden easily won yesterday's South Carolina Democratic primary. He's now focusing on Nevada's primary on Tuesday. He's campaigning in Las Vegas today. NPR Sarah McCammon reports on Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley's cameo appearance on NBC's Saturday Night Live last night. Nikki Haley has pitched herself as a younger, more capable alternative to both former President Donald Trump and the Democratic frontrunner President Joe Biden. Haley made a surprise appearance near the end of the cold open to NBC's Saturday Night Live. In a dialogue with a cast member playing Trump, Haley asked why he won't debate her and once again took aim at Trump's age. Haley also made a joke about her gaffe several weeks ago in New Hampshire, where she failed to identify slavery as the cause of the Civil War, admitting, yep, I probably should have said that the first time. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The interim head of the Massachusetts State Police says he's deeply troubled by the allegations of misconduct by four current and retired troopers. They're charged in what federal prosecutors say was a scheme to issue commercial drivers licenses in exchange for goods or services. In a video statement to the department late last week, Colonel John Mon said state police must earn and maintain the public's trust. We have since implemented numerous reforms that have significantly improved the unit's efficiency, effectiveness, and accountability. Two current and two former state troopers were among the six people charged in the scheme. The Registry of Motor Vehicles has downgraded the commercial licenses of 26 people to standard licenses because they did not properly pass their tests. A leader of a large and violent North Shore street gang has been sentenced to four decades in prison. After his conviction last year, the U.S. attorney for Massachusetts says 24-year-old Armani Minier Tejada led a drug trafficking operation around the area and into Maine. He allegedly participated in six shootings and had more than 40 firearms. He led one of the largest street gangs in the country, known as the Tiny Rascal Gangsters. Several Worcester City Councilors and the mayor of Worcester are raising concerns about receiving anti-Semitic and anti-LGBTQ mailings at their homes. The Worcester Telegram reports the mailings came shortly after a city council meeting was interrupted by callers making racist and anti-LGBTQ slurs. Several councilors have condemned the mailings. You will soon need to pay more to park in Brookline. Last week, the select board opted to raise parking meter rates to $2 an hour everywhere in town. Currently, most meters charge $1.25 an hour. The change will bring the Brookline rates in line with parking meter rates in Boston. The town's transportation board says the new rate would bring in about $1.4 million in revenue. It's 26 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and a high around 40. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macbound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. President Joe Biden has won his party's first official primary contest. Here's DNC Chair Jamie Harrison. South Carolina has once again given Joe Biden its support in this primary election. 
Four years ago, South Carolina's voters were key to Biden ultimately securing the Democratic presidential nomination. Now he and his allies hope yesterday's win will help send a message to voters across the country as the campaign looks to the general election. All Things Considered host Juana Summers is in Columbia, South Carolina, and she joins us now. Good morning, Juana. Hey, Alyssa. Biden's South Carolina win isn't exactly a surprise. So what was it like at the Democrats gathering there last night? Yeah, listen, I mean, there was not a lot of drama last night. And I have to tell you, four years ago, I was in the state during the 2020 primary and things felt totally different. This year, though, the primary was largely uncontested and most people were expecting President Biden to win. But even so, there was a lot of excitement and party leaders had a message for the country. This is Crystal Spain. She's the executive director of the state Democratic Party. This night is historic. And I've said it before. The South has something to say and we said it. Black voters make up a significant portion of South Carolina's electorate, and they're crucial to Biden's re-election bid nationally. What did you hear from them? Yeah, Alyssa, our All Things Considered team spent a couple days here in South Carolina talking to young black voters in particular about how they felt about politics and the issues that matter to them right now. And I just want to introduce you to one of them. His name is Tamandre Robinson. He is 24 years old, served in the South Carolina National Guard, and he's now a student at a technical college here. And when I talked to him a couple days before the primary, he was still undecided. He told us he wasn't limiting himself to candidates from any specific party, but he did tell me that the biggest issue issues for him in this election were college affordability, universal health care, but also unity. You know, am I looking at a person for their character? Does character truly change America or does good policy change America? None of those questions are being answered. It's just choose me, no choose me. So it's complicated. What we heard from Robinson was really echoed by some other voters that we met. There were people who expressed a distaste for the political climate. Some others told us that they wished that they had different options. And I should say we also met some young Biden supporters at an event at South Carolina State University, which is a historically black college in Orangeburg. The students that we talked to there had a lot of praise for some things in the Biden-Harris record, like increased funding for HBCUs and college affordability. You also spoke with longtime South Carolina Representative Jim Clyburn there in Columbia. Tell us about that conversation. Yeah, so we sat down with Congressman Clyburn before the results came in, and he made clear that he views this general election as a stark choice if it is indeed a rematch between President Biden and former President Donald Trump. And I asked him, if that is the case, if the choice is so stark, why do some polls at this moment show such a tight race? And this is in part what he told me, and I'll just note here that the congressman is indeed a former history teacher. History is should be instructive here. What happened in Germany in 1932? There are people who get conned out of their futures. And that's what happens to all the young people today. They're being conned out of their futures. He went on to tell us that he didn't quite understand why some people in this electorate prefer style over substance and loud noise, as he put it, over quiet diplomacy. Hmm. Wanna, what are you watching as Republicans there prepare to vote on February 24th? This is Nikki Haley's home state. She's a former governor here, and she really wants a comeback. So the big question is whether she can get one. There hasn't been a ton of polling in the state, but what we've seen shows her trailing former President Trump, who won in Iowa and New Hampshire. Most elected officials here in the state, including the governor and both sitting senators, have endorsed Trump. But she has unveiled some new sharper attacks on Trump and President Biden, and we're waiting to see if that's going to pay off. All right, NPR's All Things Considered host, Juana Summers in Columbia, South Carolina. Thank you so much. Thank you.
So much has been lost in Gaza since the beginning of the Hamas and Israel war. A catastrophic number of people killed, injured, displaced, vast destruction to homes, mosques, and other buildings. Many important historical landmarks are also in ruins, like the palace where Napoleon is believed to have slept a few nights, and Gaza's last traditional steam bath, dating from the 13th century. NPR's Daniel Estrin has visited these sites before and has this report on what's happened to them. In 2019, my colleague Abu Bakr Bashir and I went in search of Gaza's rich cultural history that's often been overlooked throughout decades of conflict. And we produced a mini travel guide to Gaza City. This is the market of Gaza. Look at these tiny carrots, grape leaves in a pile. Hey, rabbits in a cage. Spices. And my favorite store in Gaza. Come on in, come on in. Salim Arias ran this antiques shop for more than 30 years. He'd sell little pieces of Gaza's history, vintage photos and maps, and khamsas, good luck charms. And I got you what you want. Really? <laughs> yeah, the khamsa. Here they are. Beautiful. Then Hamas attacked Israel October 7th, the deadliest day Israelis have ever faced. And Israel began bombarding Gaza, the deadliest war Palestinians have ever faced. And since then, I haven't been able to reach the antique seller. I wondered what became of his shop and the other cultural and historical sites we visited back then. Journalists have been barred from entering Gaza during the war. So we contacted Omar al-Qatar, one of the few local photojournalists who did not flee Gaza City during the war. We asked him to document what some of those landmarks look like now. During a recent lull in fighting in Gaza City, he ventured outside to witness a shattered landscape. That's him walking among the rubble. He found that every site we toured back then is destroyed, badly damaged, or inaccessible. The antique shop is in ruins. Old film negatives are among the debris. He walked across the street to Gaza's last traditional Turkish bath, the hammam. It's been leveled. It was originally run by members of the ancient Samaritan religion and restored in the 14th century. Bath attendants would give full-body oil scrubs. Pinpricks of light would stream through the colorful dome. 38-year-old Ahmed Eliassi was standing in front of the ruins. I have many, many memories here, he says. I'd come with my friends to bathe. Now there is no hammam. This heritage site, they destroyed it totally. We only see ashes, destruction, stones. He says, I'm honestly stunned. I didn't expect that they'd level it. I reached Palestinian-American author Laila al-Haddad in the U.S. Her parents grew up in Gaza, and she lived there for a time as well, and wrote books about Gaza. My father was a regular visitor to this hammam. He absolutely loved it. It was like his Friday ritual. It was like this historic little spa in the center of old Gaza City. I showed her the images our photographer took of the destroyed spa, of the largely destroyed Omari Mosque, 
Gaza's oldest and most iconic site, which stretched back to Crusader times and had blue carpeted floors and stained glass windows, places that withstood centuries of upheaval until now. To see these places of beauty and culture completely obliterated, it just seems sort of vengeful to me. Yeah, it's, it's really heartbreaking to, to see all this and to, to think about the city that I cherish, that I'm from, that I love, in complete ruins. The Israeli military told NPR it bombed the mosque and the bathhouse. It said militants used tunnels inside both sites. The military blamed the, quote, malicious exploitation by Hamas of civilian buildings, including significant, mainly religious sites, for its own terrorist purposes. I see all these pictures, and really what I try, what I want to remember Gaza as is not um, sand and rocks. I want to remember it for how I knew it and how I hope it's going to be again one day. A place of great beauty, a place famous for its hospitality and its innovation um, and its resilience. One of the sites we visited on our tour five years ago was Pasha's Palace. According to Gaza historians, Napoleon slept three nights there in 1799 during his military campaign in the region. Our guide was Gaza archaeology teacher Ayman Hassuna. Oh, it's beautiful here. Yeah. There were relics on display from Gaza's ancient past, long ceramic jars that traveled on ships from Gaza around the Mediterranean, carrying precious liquids. Oil or wine? You seem very proud about, of these jars. Yes, when I see these jars, I uh, live before uh, 1,000 years ago. Gaza have peace in this period. Gaza had peace in that period and have a good economic in this period. Gaza opened in that period of all the world. Now the ornate building that displayed those relics is completely shattered. The Israeli military said it could not gather information about what happened. Five years ago, Hasuna showed us these landmarks with pride for his Gazan heritage. But since the war, he's had to flee his home along with about 1.7 million Gazans. He hasn't seen what happened to the sites we toured. So we sent him the images our photographer took. He texted back, I am shocked by the photos. I cannot believe what has happened. It's like a nightmare. Daniel Estrin, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. Coming up in about 20 minutes, you'll hear about the new coming-of-age film, How to Have Sex. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. Long stemmed red roses or the ultimate romance arrangement. Send the perfect gift from Winston Flowers and support WBUR at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. And the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. 
Thanks for spending some of your Sunday with us at 90.9 WBUR and for listening throughout the week. We bring you the latest news at the start of the hour, and you can stream us anywhere on the WBUR app. Keep listening. It's 26 degrees in Boston, high today around 40. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the latest airstrike sends a clear message to the Houthi rebel group in Yemen. The U.S. and Britain struck more than 30 sites in 13 different locations. The attacks were a second wave on groups aligned with Iran. House Speaker Mike Johnson says a standalone bill that would provide more than $17 billion in new military assistance to Israel could come up for a House vote this week. The proposal unveiled yesterday comes as the text of a broader Senate compromise that also includes additional assistance for Ukraine in exchange for tougher border restrictions is expected to be released today. And following his victory in South Carolina, President Biden will be in Las Vegas today. Nevada's Democratic primary election is Tuesday. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadworny. California is getting drenched by what meteorologists are calling a life-threatening storm system. It's the second major winter storm to hit the West Coast in a week. Only this one is stronger and is poised to mostly affect Central and Southern California, where NPR climate correspondent Nathan Rott calls home. Good morning, Nate. Hey, Alyssa. So you're in Ventura. What is it like there? All right, so we're still in the, like, relative calm before the storm stage, I would say. Uh, Little rain. Lots of wind. Um, Further north of us here on the Central Coast, the National Weather Service is warning that there could be hurricane force winds later today, uh, which is super, super rare for California. Uh, Obviously, that's causing power outage concerns and all that. But the main thing that everyone's really worried about right now is the amount of rain that's expected. Hmm. Uh, The area that I'm in is likely to get upwards of six inches of rain in the next couple of days. Some places are forecast to have more than 10 Uh, And that's especially concerning because so much of the ground in Southern California is already saturated um, from the first atmospheric river that hit California last week. So there's potential for flooding and debris flows, rock slides, pretty much all the way from Santa Barbara to Los Angeles. Okay, you're saying atmospheric river. What actually is an atmospheric river? (laughs) It's a good question. Okay, so the way that scientists have described it to me is to imagine a river of moisture in the sky. So like a band of highly concentrated water vapor, a river of water vapor uh, that's flowing with moisture from warmer tropic areas to cooler latitudes. Uh, So this one is transporting water from Hawaii to the West Coast. That's why you might hear it be called a Pineapple Express. (laughs) Weird name. Yes, what's with this name, Pineapple Express? (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, look, that's the meteorological definition. It's not a movie or a flower reference, <laughs> uh, but it is important to know, Alyssa, that atmospheric rivers are totally normal. Pineapple Express, it's normal. They're natural phenomena like hurricanes and wildfires, and they do bring the western U.S. and California most of the water it needs to grow crops and keep the faucets running in homes like mine. So they're important. That said, they can be destructive. You know, a series of atmospheric rivers last year caused billions of dollars in damages in California, flooding a lot of areas, including the areas surrounding my favorite surf shop here in Ventura. <laughs> so there's a lot to be concerned about. So we hear about all sorts of natural disasters getting more deadly, more damaging because of climate change. Is that, what ha is that what's happening here? So this is interesting. You know, it's it's widely accepted, like we, we know, right, that warmer air holds more moisture and that by burning fossil fuels, humans are warming the Earth's atmosphere. So rain events, hurricanes, for example, are becoming more intense in some places. Uh, with atmospheric rivers, it's a little less clear. Hmm. So I talked to Alexander Gershinov, a research meteorologist at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California, San Diego. We talked about this the other day, and he said they expect to see atmospheric rivers to get more intense like hurricanes with climate change. It's almost certain to happen, but we have not detected a signal yet. There is no observed trend yet. So they expect it, but they haven't seen it. When we might see it, he says, is still pretty unclear. It could happen this year. This could be the start of it. It could be years away. It could be mm. decades. Uh, there's a lot of research going into atmospheric rivers right now, though, and I think that is a reflection of how serious and dangerous they can be like we're seeing right now. That's NPR's Nathan Rott in Ventura, California. Stay dry, Nate. Hey, thank you, Alyssa. A college education can make dreams come true. For me, my... Ideal would be physical therapy. That's Augustine Miguel, a senior at Somerville High School in Somerville, Massachusetts. He's applied to a number of schools. University of Southern California, Duke University, um, applied to Tufts, Northeastern, Boston University. Augustine Miguel is like 17 million other students who've used the Free Application for Federal Student Aid, or FAFSA, this year waiting to hear back from colleges with crucial aid offers, a wait that's gotten a bit longer. Last Tuesday, the U.S. Department of Education announced that it won't be sending students' data from FAFSA to colleges and universities until the first half of March. That's in order to fix a calculation error they made in the latest version of the form. A few days ago, I talked with Augustine and his mom, Anna, who spoke through an interpreter, about just how much the cost of college determines where he will go. Money is 100% the deciding factor. Like, it's cheaper for students to go to a college that's in their state, as well as being able to afford transportation, being able to afford living there and the cost. Money's going to play a huge factor in all this. Have you talked with your mom about this? Yeah, no, I, I did speak with my mother about this. It's a pretty tough conversation, considering the fact that she's the only one really providing money for the family. Anna, how is your family thinking about the cost of college for Augustine? Ah, pues, lo que pasa que es de la preocupación porque... Thinking about finances and the opportunities and the resources needed to pay uh, are definitely top of mind. And like any mother, she really wants her, you know, child to go to school. Augustine, do you have a sense of how you're going to make the decision? Once I do receive an offer... I'm going to have to go through all of my colleges, look at all of them, look at how much I'm going to receive. Mm -hmm. And then 
I'm going to have to really decide, like really calculate what's the best decision for me financially in order for me to continue going to that school without having to really worry about how I'm going to be able to pay off all of this debt. Have you and your mom talked about how much money is too much to pay or what your threshold would be for loans? Have you had conversations about real numbers here? No, but we have talked about like a range of numbers. So if anything above thirty to 40000 is kind of a lot for like a year for a school. For Anna, how are you dealing with this process? It's so complicated. And how has it been going for you as the mom? It's definitely a complicated process, and, and even more so given that she doesn't speak English super well. So she's really relied on her son to sort of explain things to her. And even, you know, as he's translating sort of complex ideas or um, words in English, and he's translating them into Spanish, you know, they've been making it work. Yo pues me, me alegro por él porque sería el único. Mom was just saying how uh, happy and proud she was of her son taking on this really complex process and wanting to navigate the process with him, but feeling really happy for him and hopeful that he can navigate it. But he is the last child and the first one to sort of go through the process in and of itself. Are you surprised by anything your mom is saying? No, not at all. This is all the things we've discussed about in terms of college. It's not one of my favorite topics to discuss with my mom, but it's definitely one of the most important ones I have to talk to her about. Just for the simple fact that I know our financial situation and I know how difficult it is in order to move on with this chapter in my life. So it's really, really important for me. That's high school senior Augustine Miguel and his mother, Anna, one of the estimated 17 million students waiting and waiting now a little bit longer to hear back from colleges and universities about financial aid. Thanks so much for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. Gracias. And we also want to thank Ainsley Robles for helping us with this conversation and translating. The CIA says that the war in Ukraine has created a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity for the U.S. to recruit Russian spies. The agency has released several videos on its social media channels directly appealing to Russian intelligence officials to switch sides. In the latest installment, we hear from a fictional Russian patriot who's come to realize that his country's soldiers are going hungry while a corrupt elite flourish. Do I have the courage to confront this betrayal, he asks. To understand this moment, we turn to Douglas London, who was a senior operations officer in the CIA for more than 30 years. His many postings include being stationed in the former Soviet republics. London is also the author of The Recruiter, Spying and the Lost Art of American Intelligence. And he joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be with you today. So what's kind of extraordinary right now is the CIA is trying to recruit Russian spies super openly. Why do you think that's happening? I think it is a generation opportunity, as Director Burns says. The last time I think the CIA had such a great opportunity to recruit Russians was during the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s. But today it's quite different. And I think as your audience looks and hears at the video, you'll see an appeal to history, to patriotism, to family, 
and to injustice. That is a resonating issue with Russians, particularly these days. Putin's war in Ukraine, you're kind of hinting that it's just corroded support at home. What's happening in this war that opens up this opportunity? Putin has ruled since late 99. And over those years, I think the Russians were content to accept a strong man and make certain compromises when it comes to democratic freedoms and social opportunities. But what Putin brought as a strong man was stability. And he brought an ability for Russians to enjoy some economic progress going forward. That is eroding as things are going with the war. And not only is it a question of economic challenges, but also Russians have to think, is my family going to be directly impacted by loss? Are we going to lose our sons or daughters to to this war? You've recruited many people during your time at the CIA. How did you go about it? Well, uh, the translated version of the video brings chills to me because it actually is reminiscent of pitches I've made, particularly for a Russian. You want to really appeal to them to stand up and right the wrongs and basically confronting them with, well, you really can't complain if you're not willing to do something about it. And here's your opportunity because it's only going to get worse for your family to kind of appeal to that melancholy and, and darkness. Can you give us some examples of when things didn't quite go according to that plan? Well, there are always occasions where in the dynamics of human relationships, you miss something. You don't get something right. I once had a case of an official that I was pitching and I thought everything was going great. And this person had already been sharing secret information, accepting financial remuneration. And when I actually pitched him, he almost acted shocked and said, finally, well, you know, I have to ask my wife. I mean, it's not something I really thought because he came across this person as very macho and I'm in charge and, you know, it's not something I was ready for, but something I was able to deal with on the fly. So technology is a huge part of espionage these days. You're talking about this kind of human relationship. Explain to us why human intelligence is so important still. What people could provide in terms of the secrets they offer goes beyond what technology can give. You can take a look at imagery from the most expensive satellites, and you could listen to conversations or read emails. But what you don't appreciate is the context. What are really the plans and intentions? What's driving a plan? People who sit in the meetings, who are part of the discussions, part of the planning, who actually write and read the documents, they bring a depth to the intelligence that really brings it to life and much better informs decision-making when you have to make critical choices in moving forward or putting people's lives at risk or moving troops and such like that. So human intelligence is always going to have a great value. If it hasn't already been perfectly clear, the CIA is essentially asking Russians to commit a crime, right? An American found to be doing the same for a foreign government would be in a lot of trouble. Are there any qualms about what you're asking? Well, at the end of the day, it's about doing what's right. And what's right goes beyond the criminal statutes of a government that in this case is very much in the wrong. So there's a contract, if you would, right? And you can go back to philosophy between people and their leadership. And I think the idea is showing Russians their leadership has broken that contract. Their leadership is not serving in the best interest of their country. And it's talking about loyalty to country as opposed to loyalty to leadership. You know, I think it's worth acknowledging that these people are also taking great, great risk to enter into these relationships. 
Absolutely. And the relationship only works if it's very clear what those risks are mm -hmm. and what's going to be done in managing the cooperation to mitigate the risk. There's never a rejection of, oh, everything's going to be fine and, and you have nothing to worry about, but that you're doing something that's so important, it warrants taking those risks. And you're working with a professional and an organization that has the capabilities to help you mitigate those risks to achieve your goals, which is serving your nation. As well as ours. Well, <laughs> serendipity in that case, yes. That's Douglas London, a former senior operations officer in the CIA. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. The Westview Community Cemetery is the final resting place for some of South Florida's pioneering black families. But the graves and the land have not been maintained. Neither have proper burial records. Experts say it's an example of the far-reaching effects of segregation. WLRN's Gerard Albert III has this report. Elijah Wooten walks off the paved road and steps past rows of damaged and unmarked graves at the Westview Community Cemetery. He stops at a group of polished granite vaults, all inscribed with his last name. Mother, father, two brothers. How often do you come by? Every day. I've been out here this morning. The 91-year-old used to serve on the cemetery's board of trustees. Now he picks up plastic bottles and scraps of cardboard littering the cemetery on his daily walks. And that's what the community was doing when I was on the board. The Westview Community Cemetery is a 15-acre plot of land in Broward County, Florida. Some of the area's pioneering black families are buried here, including Esther Roll, known for her role as Florida Evans on the television series Good Times. Still, the cemetery has fallen into a state of disrepair as a legal battle over who should run the cemetery makes its way through court. Most headstones, if they exist, are split or crumbling. In one case, a vault is cracked so badly that the casket underneath is exposed to the harsh rain and sun of South Florida. That cemetery is an example of what happens when this is, has been a continual tension of trying to maintain a cemetery with limited resources. Antoinette Jackson is the chair of the Department of Anthropology at the University of South Florida. All those layers of things that they're dealing with underscore the systemic nature of what segregation often meant to Black uh, cemeteries and Black communities. Jackson also runs the Black Cemetery Network, an online community that works to preserve archives and physical sites of Black cemeteries across the country. The big, big thousand-foot level is the preservation of history and the comprehensive understanding of communities, which come with acknowledgement that these cemeteries and these communities were there and sometimes are still there. Ramona LaRoche works to archive genealogies in Black cemeteries throughout the South. She was part of a push to preserve the remains of 31 people buried under an auditorium in Charleston. They initially wanted to place the bones at another Black church. The community protested. Ultimately, the bones were buried back in the spot where they were found. And we actually put each other remains in its own separate small box, and then they were put in one coffin, and then we reinterred it. LaRoche says the city of Charleston paid for the burial celebration. 
In Florida, cities like Tampa and Deerfield Beach have bought back properties from developers who discovered human remains on the land. A new Florida law created a historic cemeteries advisory council and provided over a million dollars for organizations to buy land where remains were found. Progress has been slower on the federal level, where the African American Burial Grounds Preservation Act has been introduced in the Senate. As for Wooten, his fight to preserve his family's graves at Westview continues. I've been doing this for the last, what, two years, two and a half years now? Just picking up garbage and anything, anything, anything can be done that I can do to make the place look better. I do. For NPR News, I'm Gerard Albert III in Fort Lauderdale. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts cities and towns have mostly refrained from spending the money allocated from opioid settlements. A Boston Globe analysis finds that of the $50 million distributed to communities, under 5% had been spent on addiction-related efforts. More than 90% of municipalities submitting financial reports to the state did not spend any of the money last fiscal year. Boston says it plans to spend some of its $6 million on support of housing and on payments to people who've lost loved ones to overdoses. This is day one of a free program for Boston public school students and their families. Today, and the first two Sundays of every month through the summer, they can visit some Boston museums and cultural institutions without paying for admission. The participating destinations include the Boston Children's Museum, the MFA, the ICA, the New England Aquarium, and the Franklin Park Zoo. Tonight at the Garden, the Celtics take on the Memphis Grizzlies. It is 27 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and a high around 40. Lows overnight dropping to the low 20s. A sunny Monday's in store. Tomorrow's temperatures in the mid-30s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. HabibARCH.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that have a meaningful impact across our community. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories that matter to you. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Alyssa Nadborny. Partying on Lake Havasu, Crowding into a hotel room at Panama City Beach, Cancun, or Cabo, the spring break trip, a so-called rite of passage. For 16-year-old British teens Tara, M, and Skye, it's off to Greece for a holiday of clubbing and carousing on Crete in the new movie How to Have Sex. 
Molly Manning-Walker wrote and directed it. Mia McKenna-Bruce stars as Tara. And both join us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Hi, thank you for having us. Did either of you do a spring break trip like this before? Like, can you relate to this experience in the film? Yeah. Yeah, we both did. (laughs) For me, it was, I mean, pretty much what you see in the film. It's kind of, someone described described it to me a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, that's it. They described it as like going into battle. Hmm. You go in all guns blazing. Yeah, I, I went on like maybe six of them between the age of 16 and 20. Some of the memories, like the best memories of my life, and then some of them obviously more complicated. So it's probably already clear to our listeners that we're going to be discussing things that might not be suitable for children who may be listening. But that's also in a way kind of what this movie is about. That middle period when people are doing adult things with bodies and brains that aren't necessarily fully formed yet. Yeah, totally. One of the things in the film that really struck me is the storytelling felt so realistic. That kind of drunken chaos and confusion, the head-spinning feeling of being at a frat party and kind of not knowing where your friends are, you can't think straight. There's like this emotional roller coaster of it all. I wonder if you could just talk about kind of that world building and and especially I'm interested in the pool, Molly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We hired a, a documentary cinematographer, so that was one of the main things. The production design or the costuming was all sort of referenced from vlogs and TikTok and we spent a long time scouting and I guess we sort of eventually settled on probably the the most party hotel in the resort, which is like right next to all the clubs. It wasn't until like a later date where we were all standing on the roof for a tech recce and we were all looking at the pool and our heads like kind of craned and we're like, is the pool a penis shape? <laughs> and turns out the pool was a penis shape. And I guess that says a lot about kind of the environment and the sort of expectations of the environment. Yeah, you're like, I'm spot on actually in making this movie. And we picked the right hotel, I guess. And then like halfway through the shoot, the line producer came to me and was like, we're kind of under budget. Like, is there anything you want? I was like, a drone shot of the pool. (laughs) Mia, your character Tara starts off as this ball of energy. She has these great little jokes. Can you just start by telling us about her? Yeah, I mean, Tara kind of embodies that period of youth, you know, where you really think you're a lot older than what you are and you're kind of figuring it all out. And um, she does have this incredible energy, but then feels like she's got to continue with this energy, you know, even when she's not feeling like she wants to. So constantly trying to live up to the expectations of what people have of her, which I think is one of the things that resonates with a lot of people when they watch this film. She's also a virgin. What's her relationship to sex in this movie? Yeah, so when we first meet Tara, she's a virgin, and we see the girls discussing a lot that she is going to lose her virginity on this holiday, and one of her lines is literally, I don't want to die a virgin, which is hilarious because, I mean, we're looking at young girls that are, like, 16 years old, and she thinks, you know, she doesn't lose her virginity on this holiday. That's it. That's it for her. Um, which just goes to show, you know, we're getting pressures from from all angles without having the tools to actually talk about it and understand what, what that means. You know, without giving anything away, is it true that, that in workshops before filming, girls who read assault scenes from the film didn't 
consider what was being described as assault? Yeah, you know, it would say like very clearly in the stage directions that Tara was very uncomfortable and and they would be like, but she said yes, yeah, so that's fine. So it was like an interesting comparison that they were sort of drawing to that meant, you know, yes is yes, basically. One night there's this scene where, where Tara is drunk and dancing and all you hear is her breathing and the pounding of the music. That scene feels like a turning point for your character. Yeah, yeah. You know, we follow Tara very closely on her figuring out what she's feeling and why she's feeling it. And I think we do reach this moment where she's a bit like, let me try and push through this because she doesn't know how to articulate it either or who to go to, where to turn. Mia, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you told W Magazine that you have two younger sisters and you'd love for them to see this. Do you want them to see this out of pride for kind of their big sister or because you want them to kind of get the message of the film about sex and consent? Definitely because I want them to get the message of the film, for sure. One of my sisters is 16 and the other one is 21. And sex has never really been an open conversation in our house. So for me, it was really important that, you know, from as soon as I read the script, I was like, this is a brilliant way to open this conversation, to give us that in, you know? I'd also be able to talk about sex without necessarily using like yourself or your own experiences, mm. just being able to have an open conversation around sex. And they have watched the film, they watched it when it first screened in London and, and that's exactly what it's done for everyone in my family, kind of really opened up these conversations. And for me, like that's just incredible that now my younger sisters and hopefully their friends as well are starting to have this dialogue, talking about what good sex is, you know, and um, like how it feels. Molly, I think this movie reminded me so much of being young. The whole film, I wanted to just be Tara's friend and give her a hug and kind of tell her everything I know now as an adult. For you, who kind of created her character and created this world, how does that make you feel? What's your takeaway from your debut film? Uh, it's been amazing. Like, I guess um, we thought we were sort of making quite a personal small story and I guess what we've realized over time is that it's a really universal story and that's both amazing and kind of heartbreaking at the same time and to see so many women feel seen by it yeah it feels like the conversation's got a long way to go and we have a lot of battles to fight I guess. That's Molly Manning Walker and Mia McKenna Bruce their new film is How to Have Sex. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Later today on All Things Considered. It almost doesn't look real. It doesn't. Look at this. It it looks like a video game. It doesn't look real. He's going so fast. Oh, it was real and it was dangerous when the worlds of virtual and real-life race car driving collide. Tune in later by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. According to Jenna Rose Nethercott, there are 50 beasts to break your heart. Among them, maglets, easily taken in as pets. They do a fine job with the dishes, licking china cups clean with their pronged tongues to stack in neat rows on parlor shelves. Also, archalots. Fear the archalot, the house with knees. Fear its gait. Fear the insatiable lure toward restlessness. And the blue-bellied ib. 
Ever since Ibs figured out how to use the phone, it's been prank calls day and night. They're terrible jokesters because blue-bellied Ibs cannot lie. Instead, they'll ring you to tell it to you straight. The recycling is all going to the landfill. If you'd kept practicing the fiddle, you'd be good by now instead of dreadful. That comb-over isn't fooling anyone. One day, you too will die. Fifty Beasts to Break Your Heart is the title story in Jenna Rose Nethercott's strange, sometimes creepy, sometimes witty new book. And she joins us now to talk about some of her stories. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So that title story is a bestiary. It's sort of encyclopedia of animals, real or imagined. How did you come up with so many creatures? In the medieval era, there were these collected bestiaries, these sort of encyclopedias of all the known creatures that monks would gather. And they were these fantastic, weird allegorical texts, because on the one hand, they were just, you know, definitions of known animals. But on the other hand, A, many of these monks had never seen these animals before, so their descriptions of them were just truly kooky stuff. Um, One of my favorites is that they thought that hedgehogs had spikes so that they could roll around in a big pile of grapes and get a bunch of grapes stuck to their spikes to then, like, take home for a snack. They also thought that goats were so sexy that their blood could melt diamonds. (laughs) So, you know, there was some very inspiring content, to say the least. And I just loved them. I just was so entertained and tickled by them. And this marriage as well of, like, educational document with sort of moral allegorical exploration, because many of them also had these moral or ethical lessons stitched in. Uh, So yeah, I wanted to make one of my own, and I decided I was going to just go to a cafe every morning, sit down, and create three new creatures. And so for a few months, about, I don't know, eight years ago or something now, that's what I did. I'd just sit down and I'd see what showed up. Who showed up? I love it. Do you have a favorite? My favorite one is called the Yoon. Basically, the idea is that when a human body sinks into a bog and is preserved, as we often see, something of the spirit gets trapped inside the cage of this mummied creature and turns into something new, into this new new animal. And uh, the bestiary entry talks about a group of teenagers playing spin the bottle in one of their parents' basements, and the Yoon joins into the game. And when one of the girls kisses this bog body Yoon creature, the ghost slips out of its mouth and into this girl's mouth, who then starts speaking in dead languages. <laughs> it, it contains all my favorite things, which is like weird teen parties with like strange erotic energy with monstrous, bizarre spookiness and a little tongue-in-cheek humor, along with human longing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's the theme of this book. I love this. There are 14 stories in the collection. Some of them have been published in a variety of places already. I'm curious how you brought them all together. When I write a story, I essentially think of it as taking the human experience and turning the volume knob up. The way it feels to be a person so often does not always reflect in the physics of the world that we inhabit, the physical world we inhabit. So, you know, the example I like to give is if if a person in the real world has their heart broken, 
It's this solitary experience where you walk through the world and see it unchanged despite your grief. But in magical realism, that's different. In magical realism, if a person is experiencing grief, you can have their entire body shatter into a thousand pieces. Or, you know, like in my story, Homebody, we've all been in relationships in which we've found ourselves inadvertently hollowing ourselves out to accommodate another person and their needs. And in this short story, it becomes literal, in which a woman slowly turns into a house to accommodate a partner. So for me, the common language between all of these stories, the thread that ties them all together, is this logic system. It's this mending of a dissonance, where in a way, I have a hard time with realism because I feel like it doesn't accurately reflect how it feels to be a person. You have that gap between how the world reacts and how the internal landscape reacts. And with magical realism, you can mend that dissonance. Okay, two things I want to pull on. I'm not going to go too into the puns here, but you're talking about some threads and yearning. So I want to go to this story called The Thread Boy, which seemed to be a commentary to me on growing up and creating attachments with others. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually wrote that story in one sitting. This concept popped into my head of this boy entirely made of thread who snagged on everything that he loved. And so, again, it's this kind of turning up the volume knob on what human attachment feels like, on, on what it feels like to love someone and have to move forward in your life, but to always feel these tugs. And the more that you let yourself love, the more these entanglements pull on you. And it sort of explores the question of, is that worth it, you know? Is it worth allowing ourselves to be so knotted in this passion and so tied in our loves and in our connections that we're almost suspended in this net of them? There are a couple elements in your stories that I just want to point out. There are mean girls who have the ABC of murder, like this idea of kind of like natural and, and fear, or like maybe natural and fear is the wrong word, but kind of like something normal and something not normal. There's a young woman who just keeps drowning. Water just finds her. She can't even trust a regular glass of water to, to drink from. She has to drink from a sippy cup. Why are dark stories important, do you think? Well, that's a big question. I like it. Um, <laughs> I think dark stories are important, I mean, for many different reasons. But one of them, of course, is that they provide solidarity for us. The world is dark. And when we're able to look to a story that reflects that to us, we're able to recognize that it's not in our heads, you know, and that there's other people experiencing it as well. I've always been really firmly of the belief that, like, hiding the darkness of the world from children, for example, is not necessarily the right thing to do because children live in this world, right? So they experience darkness. And so to pretend that it isn't there, that to me is what's going to freak out a child. That's author and folklorist Jenna Rose Nethercott. Her new collection of short stories is called 50 Beasts to Break Your Heart. Thanks for talking with us about it. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Aisha Roscoe will be back in two weeks. I'm Alyssa Nadborny.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Thanks for joining us this weekend here on 90.9 WBUR. And thanks for listening throughout the week. You'll catch the latest news at the start of the hour. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. Hey, it's Ben Brock Johnson, executive producer of WBUR Podcasts. My mom turns 81 years old this month. She is many things, a poet, an activist, an extremely creative cook who makes pink bread with my daughter every week. Among her tireless edits, her experiments in the kitchen, good and not so good, her efforts to raise awareness about our climate, my mom somehow raised me and my older brother. This Valentine's Day, I'm thinking about what Herculean feats decades of love can do. I'm so thankful for what my mom has given me and for what she's given the world. If there's someone from your life and you want to tell them how much you love them this Valentine's Day in a meaningful way, consider sending them Winston Flowers from WBUR. And your support will help us tell more stories every day. Check out our choices at WBUR.org. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.